Good morning. I'm reading from 1 Kings chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 and 1 Kings 8 verses 1 to 13. Now King Hiram of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of da to David. Solomon sent word to Hiram saying, you know that my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to my father David, your son whom I set upon on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. All the people of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the festival in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests carried the Ark. So they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. There they are to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses had placed there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is a great pleasure to be here with you this morning and I'd like to thank uh, Simon for the invitation. Uh, normally on this time on a Sunday morning I'd be heading to Starbucks after the service at Chester Cathedral where I'd usually be complaining on social media about some aspect of the service and a dreadful congregation member. Uh, usually the hymn choice but I have no complaints about the hymns this morning. I'd also like to convey the uh, greetings of the Presbytery of England of which I'm a member. And as a former assistant minister at St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, I get overly anxious about the service choreography. So I was hassling Simon and Duncan this morning. When do I get up? When do I move? Um, but of course, the main cultural issue which visiting preachers may fall foul is how long to preach for. I am still haunted by my first piece of feedback from my supervising minister when I was training. And this happened in 1994, so you can tell how traumatizing it was. After my first sermon in the Church of Scotland in the south side of Glasgow, he said to me, 
You had three excellent endings to that sermon, but you didn't stop at any of them. So no doubt stung by that experience. A few years ago, I was actually preaching at St. Mary's Bourne Street, not far from here. At least I don't think it's far from here, but my London geography isn't great. For those of you familiar with it, you'll know that it's a very high Anglo-Catholic church. And I asked the priest in charge how long the sermon should be. And he said 10 to 12 minutes. So I preached for 11 minutes. It seems there was a mismatch between how long the priest thought a sermon should be and how long the congregation thought a sermon should be. I was told later that texts went round the congregation reading eight minutes in and no sign of him stopping. But of course, this is a Baptist church. And today I have the opposite problem. As I'm, I know you will be used to weighty, lengthy sermons and your feet will short changed if I let you out too early. And just to, to reveal, that will explain why I've padded out this introduction uh, so much. <laughs> In our readings this morning, we heard about the building and dedication of one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Jerusalem temple. For a good deal of their history, the temple was an indispensable way in which ancient Jews understood themselves, their relationship to God, and indeed the way in which they understood their place in the world in respect to other nations. The dedication of the temple recounted in 1 Kings was a marvelous ritualized spectacle, unless of course you were a sheep or an ox, emphasizing the importance of ritual, cultic and religious practice, or indeed any kind of ritualization in communicating who people are, whether religious or secular. Their identity in this case as the chosen people of God, a holy nation. The temple stood as a united nation, a symbol of a united nation. Its priestly rituals and sacrifices, its regulated practices, its focus for pilgrimage told the people who they were and communicated this identity to surrounding nations. Solomon's reign, as it's recounted in the Bible, is seen as the high point of Israelite kingship, a prosperous nation attracting visitors, among them the Queen of Sheba, to witness the glory of the temple under the reign of the son of David. The temple is celebrated elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible through the pilgrim Psalms, which speak of people's joy as they come to God's holy hill. I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go to the house of the Lord. Or it is celebrated as a sign of stability in times of uncertainty, such as in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in time of trouble. And what is that sign of God's refuge and strength? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her she will not fail. So the temple was a sign of God's faithfulness, God's stability, and God's security. The temple stands as a sign of identity and stability, telling the people who they were. Yet although our reading today and others positively celebrate the building of the temple, when the idea is first mooted by David in 2 Samuel 7, God seems a bit less keen. 
David thought it was unacceptable that he lived in a great palace while the Ark of the Covenant, where God was thought to live, was residing in a tent. Yet God asks David if he or any of the prophets had ever heard him complain about this. So running alongside the positive accounts is some ambivalence. The temple is both the place where God resides on earth, yet there is some pushback that even Solomon's temple cannot completely contain God. And this is acknowledged later in Solomon's prayer of dedication. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house I have built. And of course, the relationship between people and buildings continues to be an issue with which careful navigation is required. Many of my minister and priest friends constantly complain how much of their time is taken up by the upkeep of buildings. Um, Simon has not complained about this, I should say, um, although he might. Um, but others are more iconoclastic in their approach. The church isn't buildings, it's its people, they say. And I don't think anyone disagrees with that. But this is not the same thing as saying buildings are unimportant. In my own denomination, the Church of Scotland, the peculiar quirk of 19th century history of schism and reunifications has left us with far too many buildings. And the process of merging congregations and closing buildings is painful because buildings have been an important part of expressing identity. Important memories are formed in them. And they were the means through which, or at least partly so, God was worshipped. And so the attachment to particular spaces, particular places, is entirely understandable, such that their removal or disposal is traumatic. It may even necessitate a re-evaluation of identity and different ways of expressing it. Despite its impressive appearance, the Jerusalem temple did not stand forever. It was destroyed first in the 6th century BC by the Babylonians, and although it was rebuilt in the year 70 in the aftermath of the Jewish revolt, the Romans destroyed it such that all that stands today is part of the foundations of the Western Wall. And both of these destructions were traumatic for Jews. In the aftermath of the second destruction, they had to rethink what it meant to be Jewish in a world without the temple, that important symbol of identity and stability and God's faithfulness had disappeared. The first century historian Josephus tells us that this was actually too much of a thought for some of the temple priests. They could not conceive of a world without the temple in it, in which God had a dwelling place on earth. And so they threw themselves into the flames which burned the temple. And it seems to me on a different scale, of course, that some of the same dynamics are at work in the controversy over statues and monuments today. And the reaction to calls to remove monuments and figures with problematic, problematic histories, or indeed the successful removal of the Colson statue. Now, leaving aside the rights and wrongs of attacking statues and monuments, the reaction of what might be termed establishment voices seems disproportionately defensive. But I wonder if this is because the combination of action against statues in consort with the Black Lives Matter movement, has shone a spotlight, perhaps for the first time, on what might be called normative British identity. 
At the same time, established institutions, the church, the police, society in general, are being called institutionally racist, institutionally sexist, institutionally homophobic or classist. So combined with serious questions about our collective colonialist past, it seems that the public and visible accounts of them, or of, of what, for a want of a better term, what it means to be British, is under the spotlight. Which ex perhaps explains why these movements are met with some bewilderment by those who may have thought of themselves relatively inclusive. But it does throw a spotlight on unexamined structures of privilege. People who are white tend not to encounter barriers on the grounds they are white. And so our whiteness is left unexamined. I mean, I have to be totally honest, I, I'm, I'm still not sure what it means to reflect on my, my own uh, whiteness. It's not in any way to suggest that I or we may be acting in a way that is in any sense inappropriate. It's just that our whiteness becomes normative from which others vary. And even in our quest to be inclusive, it's still that normativity that regulates that inclusiveness. And the same is largely true of maleness, of heterosexuality and middle-classness. To illustrate, students at university may do classes in black theology or feminist hermeneutics or queer literary criticism. Black or feminist or queer become variations of an unspoken normativity which is male, white, and heterosexual. And so this means that even our most well-meaning impulses to be inclusive may be based on our unreflective privilege. It may seem like an, an easy target, especially from someone with my accent, but take the narrative around British values, a set of values that are, with all good intention, are, or at least were, intended to encapsulate and unite everyone who chooses to live here. Yet which stories are heard? People are incorporated into this uh, sense of Britishness. I could pick any other um, identity. But this obviously has become a highly contested narrative. But taking a very generous reading, it would still be based on certain authorised accounts of history, based on unexamined privilege. Perhaps this is why many have felt destabilized by recent events. Some deep-seated assumptions about who we are is being questioned like never before. Accounts of who we are can be reflected deeply, just like the temple, the Jewish temple, reflected deeply in monuments of thought as well as buildings of stone. And iconoclasm is only one, and probably not even the best response. Nonetheless, we may wish to examine our practices, traditions and buildings and how they may exclude rather than include, or how we are simply incorporating people who are different into our established ways of doing things. The Jerusalem Temple regulated belief, practice and identity. And this was even expressed in its architecture. The outer court was the court of Gentiles, where anyone could gather. Next was the court of women, which was as far as Jewish women could go, then the court of men, then the court of priests, and finally the Holy of Holies, where God was thought to dwell. And only the high priest could enter, and even then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the chosenness of the people, called to be distinct from the nations, was reinforced through the design of the temple. 
then society was regulated as certain groups could come closer to the centre. On the one hand, it was inclusive. All people could come to the temple. But basic assumptions about the world reinforced inequality. Now, I experienced something of this for myself when I was Assistant Minister of St Giles Cathedral. I was invited by a member of the congregation for lunch at the New Club. Now, the New Club is a private members club. So I dutifully turned out, dressed very smartly, even wore a tie, eh, but not with a suit jacket because it was very, very warm. Uh, during three lunch drinks, an usher came to me and said, Sir, where is your jacket? Some of, the, some of the gentlemen are getting slightly distressed. Now, my first thought was to channel my Glaswegian granny and say, show me these distressed gentlemen and I'll give them something to be distressed about. But fortunately, that is not what came out of my mouth. I was then marched off to a cloakroom to find a jacket that would fit um, so that I could come back with some suitable attire. And you know, it was a relatively humiliating experience, I have to say. Now, I'm not suggesting that there was anything unreasonable about the dress code, uh, but it was a good example of feeling excluded because I was unaware of the rules and conventions, not having ever visited uh, such establishments. And these conventions are not unimportant. Statues and buildings and monuments of thought and practice or doctrine are crucial elements in our exclusive identities. Our traditions reflect who we are. But when we are being inclusive, do we invite others to bring their stories, their traditions, in order to augment our traditions, our monuments, our accounts of ourselves, or are they simply expected to uh, just simply be uh, swallowed up into uh, those traditions, uh, like the new club. I mean, I didn't lead a revolt um, to, to not to wear a jacket on the uh, grounds of inclusivity, but that would have been the kind of equivalent. These things may not precisely reflect uh, what we want to become, but that doesn't mean they are always barriers, for sometimes they remind us of our past mistakes. Other times they are vehicles for moving forward. The early Christians incorporated the temple as a metaphor Instead of stones of mortar, people were living stones being built together into the temple of Jesus Christ. So while the physical temple did not last, the God to whom it was dedicated is still active in our world. The God whom we worship today. But that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever does not mean and has never meant that we remain static and fixed. The temple metaphor helped early Christians with one of the most problematic issues they faced, how to reconcile Jewish and Gentile believers. And it seems to me that all subsequent divisions in the church are nothing compared to that, um, that first problem. All of our divisions are reconcilable if that could be overcome. And in the words of the writer to the Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. He has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the wall of hostility. And sometimes we incorporate others or, or we express our inclusivity in saying we all have the same identity in Christ. There is neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. But I wonder if there's a danger that that identity in Christ can subsume or flatten or eliminate 
other people's incredibly important identities. In Christ, there is neither male nor female is a sign of status and belonging. It didn't eradicate what it meant to be male or what it meant to be female in the ancient world. Being one in Christ did not eradicate what it meant to be Jew or Gentile. Being one in Christ today does not eradicate identities of race, of gender, of sexuality. What we are saying that these are not barriers in the body of Christ. The writer continues, so then you are no longer strangers. No one is a stranger in the temple of God. No one is a stranger, no one is an alien. He says, but you are citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. Solomon said of the first temple, I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. The writer to the Ephesians says that we are part of that temple that dwells forever. We are part in Christ. The whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple, growing, not remaining static, but as we grow, we get bigger, we become more diverse. Other stories are brought in to this temple made of living stones. We are built together in a holy spiritual temple. And this is a temple in which there are no strangers, a temple in which all are included, a temple in which all contribute, a temple where all voices are really heard and listened to, a place where all are truly welcome. Amen. Will you please join me in prayer? Great God of the whole earth, we come before you today as COP26 begins to bring before you the needs of this planet. And we do so trusting that you are the God of Afghanistan and the God of the Gaza Strip that you are the God of South Sudan, the God of the Yemen, the God of London, and the God of Bloomsbury. We trust that you are the God of the environment and of our climate, that you are the God of the marginalized and of the victim, God of the poor and the suffering, God of the well and the wealthy, God of the safe and the secure. We trust that you are God of the whole earth. And we trust that you are our God and we are your people, called in all our diversity. And so it is in trust as your people that we cry out to you that the world is not the way that it should be. Every day we see people diminished and distorted in their humanity. From those living in war zones, being used as weapons in fights that are not of their making, to those dropping bombs and piloting drones, to those holding civilians hostage to ideologies of hatred and desperation, to those who could negotiate peace but whose national interest is better served by war, to those facing 
the catastrophe of climate change and failing harvests and uncertain land to live on. And we remember the example of Jesus who sat and ate with outsiders and sinners, who received hospitality and gave friendship across borders and boundaries. And we commit ourselves to living differently, to seeing the person behind their presentation of themselves, to finding the image of the divine in each created being. Help us to open ourselves to those who worship in different ways to us. Release us from suspicion of the other and from fear of difference. May we learn to build bridges across divisions of faith, ethnicity and origin. Open our eyes to the systems of oppression that enslave humanity. And through our prayers for others, may we find within ourselves the commitment and the courage to stand against those powers and principalities of wealth and patriarchy that subjugate women, constrict men, exclude children, disadvantage the marginalised and impoverish the vulnerable. We pray for the COP26 conference and we ask that as global leaders gather to discuss the future of the planet we all share, your gift of life for us. A concern for the common good will override concerns of nationalism and tribalism. In a world where death so often seems to get the final word on life, we recommit ourselves to the one who brings life to the living and hope to the dying. And so we stand in prayer alongside those who are sick, those who are diminished through dementia, those who are living with terminal illness, those who are bereaved. We pray for our friends and for our families and for ourselves. May those who need courage be granted it. May those who seek peace discover it. May those who long for rest find it. Great God of the whole earth, may we find our purpose and completion in you. Amen. To conclude, a blessing. May the God who offered Moses the ultimate standards of behaviour establish his values in our hearts. May the God who led Solomon in the ways of wisdom guide us in our decisions. And may the Lord who David worshipped fill our hearts with poetry and song forevermore. Amen.